even before we sin, he's got grace. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. With me today is Karen. Hello. And Tracy. Good morning. And from far, far away, we've got Eric. Hey, good to be with you. Yeah, he says good to be with us, but Eric is actually... Why don't you tell us where you are, Eric? At the moment, they're experiencing about a foot and a half of snow back in Colorado, and I'm in Florida just... My, my biggest problem is getting the sand washed off my feet. Oh, you poor thing. Sounds terrible. It's a trial. Oh. <laughs> so are you on the beach right now? No, I am not. Can you I, see the uh, beach? I cannot. Okay. But I know it's there. Okay. Well, I know it's there, too. It's just further away from me. Yeah, that's, that was going to be my point. I know it's there, too. <laughs> you wanted, you wanted to picture you, you know, out on the beach, sitting in a lounge chair with your, you know, your little laptop by you and trying to do this while the, uh, the ocean is, the tide is coming in. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, the, the mental picture is, it's, I'm sitting in a little a corner of a, of, a, of a bedroom here, participating with my notes out like we, like we all do, and. For the listeners who who do listen, um, we actually all do take notes on this stuff. We were part of a uh, a Bible, I guess you'd call it a um, study group that would meet weekly at uh, before church, and we did a read through the Bible program. And I think all of us were part of that. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't um, in anticipation of this podcast. But we decided as a study subject, we would just read through the entire Bible um, in one year and talk about whatever we thought was interesting uh, that that um, that week. Now, that group was a lot bigger than this, and we covered a lot more ground per week, and that would have been so difficult to cover all the topics. Um, but we made all, probably, I won't speak for anybody else, but I know I made notes in my Bible at that time. And uh, I wrote down a lot of notes to, for discussion. I know Matt did. He had a big old leather journal that he had all kinds of stuff written in. And so we actually do make notes week to week of the things that we want to uh, we want to talk about. We do some external reading. Um, so we, we 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 have a difficult time fitting this into each week's thing because in this week's going to be no exception. Wow, there's mm-hmm. a lot going on this week. Right. Yeah. So I guess we should probably get started, huh? From our readings in the past, we've gotten to a point where King David has finally taken the throne and his military prowess is really taking off. Uh, I believe last week he it was said that finally the Philistines were being pushed out, the Ammonites were being pushed out, the, the Hittites. I mean, everybody was getting pushed out and, and uh, David's, at least militarily speaking, um, the Bible is telling us very, very, very plainly that uh david is being a very is very successful as a king here where saul really just had not done uh much of anything at all except for it seems chase david all over the countryside while the philistines were slowly taking over uh seemed like vast portions of of what was supposed to be israel's land 
Um, I think too, we could say that he was, he was, we just saw so much as military campaigns, mm -hmm. not so much anything else, just the military part. Right. I don't think we've right. read about any, you know, big decisions, you know, government wise. It's right now. He's just kind of clearing the path. Like we had talked about last week. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so the, where our reading begins this week is that, David has Joab sent out to fight against the Ammonites. So I'm thinking maybe this is backed up just a little bit because there was there was some talk in last I think it was last week's reading about um, about specifically Joab defeating the Ammonites. Well, David has sent Joab out to defeat these Ammonites. And while they're out, I guess David is back in Jerusalem doing kingly things. Uh, we're not like you said, Tracy, we're not getting on a whole lot of insight into the uh how'd you put it just just royal decrees or or policies things like that but we're given a glimpse now into david's life i guess from jerusalem and we're told that he sees this woman he's out i don't know he can't sleep at night or something like that he goes out on his roof and this is a pretty famous story everybody probably knows this but he goes out on his roof and he sees a woman I guess across the way and she's bathing and you know, I'm I, I, as I'm reading it, I'm trying to, okay, I'm not trying that hard, but I'm trying to picture the scene of <laughs> uh, look at, look at across the way and seeing a woman. I don't, I don't know. It didn't say that she's on her roof or if, if she's inside. Yeah, yeah. And, and just we're, we're in second Samuel 11. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And in chapter 2, it, it says, It happened late one afternoon. Uh, David rose from his couch, and walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Yep. There's a lot about that whole thing that I don't understand, too. It's like, was, like, is, was his, like, the highest one, highest building, and, like, that's the only possible one that could have seen into her? Place. You know, I'm wondering that too, but then I was thinking, thinking back too. And if if you look and just kind of jumping forward a, a little bit ahead, Uriah was one of the best of the best. But yeah, he was one of the thirty, the, the very best. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> mm. So I wonder if David surrounded himself, you know, maybe with the the palace there and his elite guard around that perimeter as well. So his house had the high vantage point where he could look down on things that were going on it, it, a certain distance maybe not you know what i'm talking the entire city but you know a certain maybe a neighborhood out you know what i'm saying and, and that's where i think he caught a glimpse but i think what eric was saying is right there's a little bit more to this story because you know should he have stood there and been a peeping tom longer I don't know. Was it a short glimpse? I don't know. Did he stand there and watch the whole bathing process? Well, he's got to be close enough to see what she looks like. And I know that, I mean, I can't see if somebody's beautiful from very far away. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a, and why would she be doing this in the eye shot of the palace? while her husband's gone was this a total accident we, we're given no clues i mean like this one verse is all we get no. and, and as, as to the setup of the problem it leaves way more questions than answers 
mm-hmm. but it goes badly. Yeah. So yeah, it had me up wondering, you know, is this a woman who's is she being immodest? Is she not expecting an audience? Yeah, we don't we don't really know. We do know at this point David has a lot of wives, and so he's uh, obviously very attracted to women. Uh, some of them are taken for, I say, uh, taken as wives for different reasons. But um, but he definitely seems to like 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 his women, and uh, he he wants to find out more about this one particularly. And so yeah, it, it's sort of interesting to me that this he finds out that this is Uriah's wife. Now Uriah is uh, one of the most his most loyal. Um, He's not, I don't know about general, but he's definitely one of his most loyal military leaders. And it sort of surprises me that he doesn't already know who this person is. That he doesn't know who she is. Well, yeah, doesn't know who she is. But if if Uriah is as close to David as it seems, or is at least as loyal, and and she's close enough for David to, to see her, it seems to me you would kind of think that he would know that that's Uriah's house and might have some concept. That's just my speculations, my my thinkings on the subject, which you know amount to very little because um, I wasn't there. Yeah. Also, I would go with apparently not because he has to ask who she is. Right? Yeah, he asks who she is. So it's just it's I don't know. These are just interesting little tidbits to me, but it it it, it lets us know, I guess, right away that this doesn't seem to be something that was preconceived. It doesn't seem doesn't seem like maybe this was a regular habit of David's. I mean, we can at least grant him that little bit of 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 uh, of grace on this, because you know, the, my for the first my first inclination is to just want to get on David for being a peeping tom, you know. But if you're just out innocently walking on your roof in the cool of the evening or or whatever, and a woman is <laughs> you know, stark naked out in practically in public, you know, I mean, I don't know too many men who are going to just instantly turn their back on that, you know, um, it, 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 you know, innocently enough, you, it's just, you look, you know, but, um, you know, he could be peering into her backyard or, you know, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's right out there out in the open for everybody to see. I was thinking more like, you know, he had a vantage point to like the backyard. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little too specific and, you know, letting my mind wander here. But, you know, pergola, some bushes, you know, Mm -hmm. other side neighbors couldn't see her. And just because he had the vantage point of being up high that he was able to. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't want to think of David as a lecherous creep. I just I think (laughs) I think at least my 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 gut feeling on this tells me that it was an innocent enough encounter to begin with. But where David goes from here, right. he's got to take, take the blame. Yes. Right. So the story goes is that he sees her. She's beautiful. He asks who she is. He says, oh, well, bring her to me. He sleeps with her, and she's, then she becomes pregnant. I mean, that part of the story is a very, very short part of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, one plus one equals two. I mean, I don't know, I don't know that birth control... It doesn't seem like from a lot of the stories of this type in the Bible, it doesn't seem like birth control was much of uh, much thought was put into it. Um, I, I guess we've had one we've we've had one story where they knew how to prevent a pregnancy, but it didn't seem like very often that that was uh, 
like they like they took any type of precautions with this kind of thing. But just a tidbit of information there. I thought I would kind of bring this up, but there was the Egyptians did it before that, and it usually. Mm like with lamb intestine or some kind of intestine that had a mm-hmm. thin membrane. But still, I was I was kind of going by and I kind of was making tick marks. And, you know, I said it half-heartedly, but the first wrong in my, when I was looking at it, was maybe peering too long and, and coming up with this idea, well, let me go ahead and call her, which was mistake number two. How about you guys? Did you think the same way? Well, you know, he could have, it could have been a passing glance and you keep moving on, but... Mistake number one is he stayed there and looked. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Personal side, physical attractiveness or animal magnetism, call it what you want, compel you to, okay, let me go ahead and call her. Mistake number Look, two. Everybody faces this with with one thing or another. Okay, for and everybody has their, so to, so to say, kryptonite. For me, gambling is absolutely not it. I've been to Vegas on various um, uh, conventions, and I've been a speaker at at events and stuff like this. And I mean, you can't land in Las Vegas and walk out of the airport without going through, uh, you know, gambling opportunities. To me, that holds absolutely no attraction whatsoever. Not even the tiniest, tiniest little bit. There's just no part of me that resonates with that. But if it did, if I so much as stopped and just took a look like ah well i do have a couple dollar right there as soon as we stop whatever and we and we give it opportunity i think new testament talks about when we're tempted to not give the devil even a foothold that means just like not even pausing for a moment to indulge the thought and david does now we all do it's it's easy just to go oh, that david he's just but let's remember that until this point david has always been um, he's asked God, I mean, over everything, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do the other thing? You notice that he doesn't stop and ask God, should I do this? Cause I think he knows the answer, but he doesn't stop. And this, um, unleashes a chain of really, 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 really bad things. I mean, this changes the course of, of his entire kingship. This this just gets wildly out of control because he doesn't stop right when he can't. And I'll tell you this. I mean, I've got um, when we moved into uh, to our house in Colorado, we had no yard and it was a pretty big. We had about a 20,000 square foot area and there was no yard. There is it was we picked all the weeds, put them in garbage bags. And then I'm like, I'll deal with this later. You can't leave dirt raw. You just, you can't. There's no such thing. It it will produce weeds if you don't get in there and put something better there. And David kind of has this like, oh, well, I'll just kind of keep it blank kind of a thing. And it it doesn't work. He ends up with, um, he ends up in some really big problems. Jesus talks about that in the New Testament. He he talks about... um, a uh, a demon that was that was cast out, and then the person who had the demon just cleans up their house and straightens it all up, but doesn't put anything else in there. And the demons come back and find the place vacant, and takes all his friends with him. And it was worse than when he started. And 
Boy. Mm-hmm. David's lack of self-control here leads to what is like a domino thing. And the very first one that he does is it's bad, but it's bad in so many because it starts so many other things that become worse. Mm-hmm. I know. Sounds like worse? Oh yeah. I had a it also highlighted too that that David was in routine of asking God everything he should do, except when it came to women. Yeah. He never yeah. asked God about getting all these wives. Not once did we see him say, you know, God, should I marry this, you know, fourth, fifth, whatever number of wife he's on at this point. And I think just like Eric was saying, that was his kryptonite as well. And it was one of those things that also became a crutch, you know, if we look ahead for one of his sons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it was one of those kind of family curses. But that's what I had in my notes, too, is that. He never asked God about, should I have multiple wives or asked him about marrying multiple women. And if we go back all the way to the beginning where we started, it was ultimately meant to be one man, one woman. And that was your your family. Well, as uh, I think it was Eric said, Bathsheba does get pregnant, which is, you know, I wish more people would understand these days that that is a that's the general result it's the it's the main it's the main purpose for sex is for making babies uh but um david decides that he needs to cover this up instead of right away taking responsibility for the thing he does a politician move and tries to make a big cover-up and uh calls uriah back from the front where he's in where he's been in battle and he's 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 hoping that uriah will come back and go sleep with his wife then it won't you know it won't seem odd that Bathsheba is pregnant while Uriah has been at battle because this is the way uh this is the way things work but Uriah comes back and he's just he's like a really seems like he's a really upstanding guy he won't even go to his house he won't go to his own house because this is he, honor this is yeah. honor when we look at honor and shame between these two you couldn't make a more clear distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he 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 gets called back. Uh, he's military got the bearing is what I have written down. Military bearing, extreme military bearing. Yeah, yeah, but he won't go back to his house because he doesn't think it's right that he gets the opportunity for comfort while his men are out in battle and sleeping in tents out in the fields. So. I mean, David tries a couple times to get him to go back to his house, and he just won't do it. So David comes up with this scheme now, and this is where it just gets treacherous, gets uh, devious. And um, I, we just haven't seen anything like this from David before, the, where he decides to send a letter ahead to Joab, says that when Uriah comes back, I want you to put Uriah at the very front where the fighting is the worst. And then I want you to your men to draw back away from him so that he will get killed and get I was going to say get killed and die. Those kind of go together. But basically, David is having Uriah killed. He's just straight up having Uriah murdered. And he gives Uriah the letter. He writes the letter to Joab saying, do this so that Uriah Mm -hmm. will be killed. And then he gives the letter to Uriah to take to his commanding officer. 
And that's really low. <laughs> Man, that's low. We mm. see we see David doing things here that he never would have done before. I mean, he he had every right by rights anyways to take the life of Saul two times and he doesn't do it. Mm. And he would have been justified in the eyes of pretty much everybody on his side for sure. And probably a lot of people even on Saul's family would have said, "Well, I mean, we can understand why he did it." And here he's just doing something that's just way out of line. And it's interesting because this comes up a lot. It's like, well, God called David a man after his own heart. He did when he was seeking God in all of his decisions. He was turning to God. Should I go to this city? Should I flee this city? Should I save these people? Should I? That's the point at which David was called a man of God's own heart, which is important because, one, we see that God does not excuse sin, in fact, at the very end of the chapter, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And it wasn't kind of like, ah, I'm kind of disappointed. I mean, he was really not happy with David here. We, yeah, the note in my Bible even says that it literally means that it was evil in the, sides, yes. in the eyes of the Lord. Not just displeased, but this was evil. Evil. And if people look at this and say, well, David did it. I mean, it's just like, well, I could get a pass then because, I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. It's like, not now. This was no part of God's heart, because God had strictly and absolutely forbidden adultery. One, so he crossed that line straight up. That was not allowed. Two, he's bearing false witness, you know, about this whole thing. Like, oh, it wasn't really me. It's implied in his actions. He tries to do this to Uriah. Then he it basically commits murder. He, he, he hires a hit, essentially, on Uriah. And so David is just, he's just knocking down these Ten Commandments just left and right. And this is not a man after God's own heart. And I think it's worth noting that just because one has a walk with God today, or had one yesterday, or had parents who were godly parents, God doesn't look at that and say, well, yeah, you pretty much, you just smooth sailing from here on, you know, because you and I were buddies once. You can pretty much do whatever you want now. Not the case. Right. The way that David approaches this and the the way he just kind of tries to cover it up when there's re- when there's when there's fallout from it, unwanted fallout, it reminds me of the contrast between the his his self-centered thinking right now in this story and Joseph's thinking when Potiphar's wife came and offered herself to him and was in fact quite aggressive and he turns her down flat and says, how could I do this terrible thing and sin against God? Like his, his orientation is always towards God, even when a woman is, is as, as the story goes, literally tearing his clothes off, trying to get him involved here, right? And then here's David like, ooh, I think I could do that. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's a huge difference in point of view and where your thoughts are, and where your priorities are, and how you handle the temptations that come around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, too, what I have is that this is where we see a paradigm shift with David, away from really looking at God for every single move that he's going to make to a more self-serving, self-centered aspect of, of David's reign is now, you know, I think he got a little bit 
full of himself and, and, and fell into the role as being king. And this is where you kind of see that his selfishness. And that being said, too, I think when we look at it, like Eric was saying before, that God God did not like what he saw. But I think, too, if we look a little bit deeper, this was premeditated. This took some planning on David's part. He put a lot of effort into, just call it what it is, killing somebody. And, he, and a righteous person that had done nothing wrong, really. Uriah, he was a, the stand-up guy, the stand-up general, the military-bearing person doing his duty to, let's just say, God and country. And they plotted, David David himself plotted to kill him for no reason. And I think that's where, at this point, David was just looking after himself. So what did you guys think of, there were a couple of contrast points that jumped out at me. So verse 1 of chapter 11 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Okay? And then the contrast point to that comes at the end of chapter 12, where it starts in verse 26. It says, Meanwhile, Joab uh, fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So what do you guys think of this whole thing where this is the time of year when kings go off to war? This king didn't go off to war. Like he's sitting, he is a man of war. He has, that is how he has lived his life since he stopped shepherding, you know. Probably starting mm-hmm. back as far as Goliath, he takes a look at conflict and goes, no, that's what needs to be done, and I'm the one to do it. And he goes and does it. And now he's sitting back in his palace with nothing to do, and he's he has Joab out fighting his battles, and then Joab knows what he's up to because he gets this letter from him that says, you know, put your eye on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest, and then step back from him and let him be struck down. Joab knows what's up, and he reprimands the king later. By saying, you know, you come muster the troops. Otherwise, I'm going to take the glory for this. Mm-hmm. And Joab, as we see a few times throughout this these stories, Joab has an interesting way of dealing with things. He's kind of like, he's direct, but he's not. Like, he definitely knows his place, but he sure knows how to make his point. But anyway, what do you guys think of this? Like, just the idea that normally this time of year, David would have been busy. And instead, he's sitting in a palace with nothing to do. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. I I had sort of wondered in the back of my head the same thing. It's like, why isn't David out doing this? Because he has been known for his military prowess so much. And he's, um, you know, I mean, what he used to be, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's he's not. And, and, and maybe like Tracy said earlier, he's kind of letting his his position uh, get the better of him when you find yourself in a position of power and responsibility where you can point and other people go do there's a there's a bit of a uh, of a temptation to just let them go do instead of being more involved so 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 yeah i mean maybe maybe with this shift that he's had his perspective is different and like you say he's 
he's bored. He's sitting around with nothing to do. And and um, maybe he's maybe he's not really performing the responsibilities as he should. And that's why he found himself in a position uh, to get into this kind of trouble. Because we've already said he obviously has an eye for the ladies. And now he's and he doesn't seem to be one who's satisfied necessarily with what he has. And now he's, uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's got time on his hands and power to just kind of do what he wants. And I just remember when I was raising kids, like I had, I had one kid who was fairly easy to entertain. And I had one kid who was really, really energetic and sort of naturally restless. And that was the boy, just by happenstance. It could have been the other way around, but it was the boy. And that only got worse when he hit puberty and his testosterone kicked in. I had to keep him busy. If I didn't keep him busy, I never knew what was going to happen. Was something going to get set on fire? Was there going to be a hole punched in a wall? Was there going to, you know what I mean? Like, I never knew what he was going to do. And it, and And when he was bored, nothing he came up with to entertain himself was good. Mm. So I just, I don't know. I think there's something, I think there's a lot to be said for having a life that keeps you occupied, fills your mind, fills your time, keeps you, keeps you turning to God. I think there's a lot of value in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. agree. It's, um, it's important to just not be idle. You know, you can, you can have, you can have moments of, of, of relaxation and, and, and whatnot but um if you just end up yeah if you're bored what's 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 the phrase um idle hands are the devil's playground that's it that's it yeah which by the way is not a bible text just no. for those who are listening but it's a it's a it's um it's a maxim that finds lots of examples in the mm-hmm. bible today it's today it's from the book of first tracy yeah <laughs> Uh-huh. And we see it lived out by David. And yes. <clears throat> we should probably keep moving here, but we see mm-hmm. um, what ends up happening. I mean, narratively, Uriah is killed. And then Uriah's <laughs> wife mourns the loss of her husband. And David says, okay, you're going to come here and be another one of my wives. And then we have Nathan's rebuke of David in Second uh, Samuel 12. And Nathan is a prophet, and he comes and he tells a story. I think it's fascinating that that he tells a story, not just a, hey, let me quote you a couple texts. And, uh, hey, don't you remember the Ten Commandments, David? He, that's not how he rolls here. Very interesting. And I think that there is a lesson in this for us today, both as we look at the words of Jesus, as he talks. It's interesting. He says, he teaches everything in parables, that is, stories. Well, why didn't he just say, get to the point, give me the theological points, let me tell you this, this, and this, because he wants to engage our minds on a different level, instead of, well, that's right and that's wrong. He wants to get our hearts involved, like, no, that's actually wrong, and I feel it. And so Nathan tells this story, if you haven't read it, I recommend that you tell it, that you read it, I should say, in Second uh, Samuel 12, tells the story of a poor man, who raised a lamb and a rich man basically just takes it and uh, kills it and serves it to a, <laughs> to a traveling guest. And David says in, uh, in verse six and David's mad. He's so angry. And he says, you know, who did this? 
he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Like, if he took one lamb, he's going to pay him back four times. And Nathan says, you are the man. Mm-hmm. And David is, and basically he just says, look, didn't you have basically whatever you wanted? And if you wanted more, couldn't I have added even more? But why did you despise, this is in uh, verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? Back to what Matt said, is that the God calls this evil. This idea that, well, David did it, and he was a man after God's own heart. No, just listen up right here. It says, what he did was evil, and he calls it straight out. He does no, no more stories now. Nathan's just like, here's exactly what you did. David thought it was a secret, and that also plays out later. He says, behold, I will raise up evil for you out of your own house and take your wives before your eyes and gives them to your neighbor. And they shall lie with your wives in the light of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do all of this thing in Israel before the sun. Basically, you your secret sin is going to come back against you for everybody to see. And Nathan says, you have done this deed and you have utterly scorned the Lord. And... Um, the story goes on is that David's child by Bathsheba dies. He's not just like instantly dies, not a stillbirth. The child is born and uh, each of us has had children. And David, no doubt, sees this child, probably holds this child, feels um, the, all the feels that a parent has towards a child. And the child gets sick and suffers for a period. I want to say it was a week, but I'm not sure how long it was. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah. And um, and the child dies and David is a penitent. He's like he's torn his clothes. He's got ashes on his head. He won't eat. He won't do any of these things. He's he's pleading for the life of the child. Child dies anyways. He sees his servants whispering. He's like, ah, I know what happened. The child died and he gets up and he gets dressed and he, you know, washes and. And his servants are like, what's up with you, man? You, you were like crying and, you know, all this stuff when the child was alive. But now that it's dead, you're, you're eating and drinking again. What's up with that? And he said, look, you know, when the child was alive, I fasted and wept and said, for who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and the child may live. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I promise this is the only time I'll say this, but there were so many times as a modern female reading through this that my hackles went up. <laughs> like mm. Bathsheba, hey, you're good looking, and a powerful man saw you and thought you were nice. That's the stuff that you were attractive. Go there and put out, right? And then, like the the punishment for David is like because you have done this thing, I'm gonna take your wives, and your enemy is gonna sleep with them in the light of day. Really, really, what about the wives? Wives have no say in this. Is this just like we're nothing but a collection of body parts that might be useful to a dude? So we just get passed around. Okay, I'm done. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> no, that, that that's a that's a valid point, and it's. I mean, that's I. I don't know. It's probably a way way deeper discussion than we have time for today. And maybe it'd be an interesting one to just do a little side discussion about sometime. But you know why why would God punish David with that kind of an action? It's such a yeah. Uh, but you bring up a good point here. Your, your your statement is, why would God punish David with such and such? Mm-hmm. 
there's a, there's a significant and noteworthy, and we should not miss it, difference between God doing this to David and this being the natural mm. result of what David does. God had protected David and others supernaturally many, many times when they were aligned with God. It's the children of Israel in, in the desert, these fiery serpents. Yep. God didn't, I don't believe, create all of these fiery serpents that started to bite people. They were there all the time. It's just now that he withdrew protection from them, and now they started to get bit where they never had before. What David does here, and this is important because it happens in this chapter, it happens in chapter 13, it happens in chapter 14, it happens in chapter 15, is that all of these things, David plants seeds, and they are seeds of sin, and they grow and bear fruit. God doesn't do these things. Now, I'm not getting on you, Matt. I'm just saying yeah. we need to keep this right in our own lives, is that it's just kind of like, well, why did I crash? And somebody might say, well, how fast were you going? Well, 85, what were the conditions? Well, icy and low visibility. Well, maybe it's because you were speeding. Maybe that's a natural result of what you did. And I think we're gonna, we'll see this both in David's actions and his inactions as a father. No, it's a good point. I fell I fell into that trap of 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 wanting to place something on God that really wasn't wasn't his. You know, I think too, and I don't know if we've actually hit on it yet, but this is one of those big areas that we've seen it before, we've talked about it before, but it's natural consequence. And we haven't said it yet, but this is the story for it. This is the one that brings it out because everybody is always saying that just like we've been saying, David was a man after God's own heart, but he did make mistakes and he he ultimately does repent for them, but like we said, he spread those seeds, and they did. They germinated, and they grew, and the growth of those was the consequences that he was going to pay for the rest of his life. This did not leave him, you know, and I, and I often wonder, too, that, you know, by Nathan coming out and saying, you know what? Everybody's going to know what you did. Ultimately, they did know what he did, and, you know, I think you view your leader a little bit different when this happens. You know, so I think it's it's just that part that we tend to forget is that we may sin and we may ask for forgiveness, but it's not a free pass. You're going to have to pay the consequence. It might not be right away, but I think there's going to be ramifications down the road that, you know, you did this and this is what happens. Yeah, that's a Tracy, you made a super important point here. And Nathan says it, too. He says your your sin is forgiven. But. This is going to happen as a result. And we we kind of want to think, well, I said I'm sorry. I have a son. He's he's 12 years old. And he'll do stuff. And sometimes he'll do it. And then he'll say, oh, sorry. Like, okay, sorry doesn't unbreak the glass. Yeah. And sometimes we want to believe that just when we say, oh, sorry, that that all of a sudden kind of rewinds time and undoes it. So in David's defense here, and this is where we see the man after God's own heart, okay? So two, two aspects. When he does re repent, he does it wholeheartedly. And Psalm 51 is one of the uh, po um, poetry results of that. And then two, one of the parts of the story that probably enhances the fact that everybody knows he did this 
is that even though he has the power, like he he could have, he could have, you know, married Bathsheba to protect the child, but then um, put her away, just sort of like quietly sent her to a house in the country once that baby died. And instead, he he keeps her with him as his wife. Like he doesn't throw her away to hide the situation. And there, so I, I have to give him some respect for that because in this society with as much power as he had, he could have done that. Mm-hmm. And it would have, it would have removed the ongoing reminder of how he acted from everybody's point of view. And it probably, it probably would have helped him out a little bit socially, like in within his own family and stuff like that. But instead he kept her right there with all the other wives and, so I got to give him credit for not tossing her to the wayside because she was in she because she represented an embarrassment. When he repented, he did it wholeheartedly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about David's repentance in Psalm 51 a bit before we move on too far here. Because like Karen said, Psalm 51 is his poetic response. And David, David's well known for writing the Psalms and the Psalms are always kind of prayers. They're prayers that that he would put to. Uh, put to song, and this one is specifically. This is this was specifically noted to be his repentance when Nathan went to, to him after he had slept with Bathsheba. And he starts out right off. He's asking for mercy based on God's character. We talk about David being after God's own heart. David understands that God is merciful. He he knows he's done something wrong. But he also knows that God is a merciful God, not vengeful. Yeah, I, I really like 90% of what he says here. There's there's one verse in this that a little bit sticks in my craw. I'd be interested in you guys' thoughts on it. So it's in verse uh, 4. So he's saying, you know, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. And then he says, against you, you only have I sinned. That stuck out with me, too. Yep. That seems like an odd observation from a man who, you know, took hold of somebody's wife and got her pregnant and then had the dude killed to try to get away with it. And that's where I think when I've said before, he shifted into being selfish that, you know what, I to me, I just took this and it could be wrong. You know, maybe you had some different. But to me, it was like, you know, I'm the king. I only have to answer to you. Really don't care what any of my constituents think. It's just you I'm worried about. Yeah, it is interesting because you know we're looking at this, and obviously, I think we're we're we're, we're pointing out that David obviously sinned against Uriah. Even if Bathsheba was, she seems to have been um, on board with going to David and sleeping with him. But even if she is compliant in this, his sin is against her as well because she is a married woman. And uh, so, so yeah, it's it's interesting that he would take this this position of, of his sin being only against God. And maybe it's just ultimately, ultimately the one that really matters is the sin against God. This is where, too, I'm, I'm just going to kind of get maybe a little blunt. Maybe this is too much of a, a visual here, but I like to say sometimes that Sometimes you could cause a poop storm and a lot of people get stinky. And, and this is this is where I'm thinking here because just like Karen brought up, it's not only him that 
only God that he sinned against. You know, you can throw Bathsheba in there. You can throw Joab in there. You can throw Joab in there. Yeah. All the military men that had to go into a conference and say, we're going to get into the thick of the battle, and then I want you to pull back and leave leave Uriah there. That's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that went into this formulation of this premeditated strike against Uriah. And it's like, here, he just forgets about all those people. Yeah. David, he really makes a lot of good points going forward here, though, too. He where, does. You know, he talks about being brought forth in iniquity, or at least that's the New King James version of it. And I had to I had to stop and think about that and, and study into that that phrase a bit where he's saying, basically, as a human being, I have a sinful nature when we're born. You know, we're born as human beings and we have this. I've heard it's, you know. It's a propensity towards sin. We, it's our natural, it's it's kind of our natural way to go, and that's kind of what he's saying here. We have to fight against it constantly, because we have we have these desires in our heart to do things that we we think we want, and and I, it's not like he's taking this as an excuse, but. He's just acknowledging, I think it's just an acknowledgement of something here where we have to, we do have to acknowledge that we are not at our base good. It's Not to start. Have, not to start. We have to fight it. We have to learn. We have to learn to move away from those things. We have to learn to be less, less selfish. We have to learn to think outwardly and to... We've, we've got to learn to curb some of those passions and desires that might come naturally because we're, we have a sense of reason that should be able to uh, overpower those, not overpower, but counter those, those passions. This is where the road divides and it'd be easy to miss it. It could divide in, and we could say, we need to be in control of where we go, and we need to make these decisions, and we need to fight sin, and we need to be constantly battling and, and, and be the victor. So let's just kind of put, push pause on that for a second. And then let's look down here at what David says um, in a couple places. Behold, uh, this is uh, Psalm 51 Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Like, hmm. So what's he talking about there? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Now, do you all remember where hyssop shows up before? Mm -hmm. I have some notes there on it. I think the first note was back in Exodus. And this yep. is, they would use it to spread the blood on the doorposts in Passover. So, okay, so let's just not miss that symbolism. Was it their own blood, or was it somebody else's blood? No, it's the blood of the Lamb. So, that's grace. Mm -hmm. Is that we have to submit to grace. Again, we're skipping ahead to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Who's going to grit their teeth and make their spirit right? <laughs> big, big, big difference is that he's saying, I can't do it. God, you have to create this clean and hard in me. You have to renew a right spirit within me. Because we see this divide in, in, in the spiritual world. We see, we see some who, who will say, hey, 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to grit my teeth. I'm going to be good in X, Y, Z. And man, those people come up with a list that puts the Pharisees list to shame. And they end up in guilt and they end up in struggles and they end up in denial and they end up in bitterness. And the people that I know who struggle with this in the end end up giving up all, everything. They're like, screw it. I can't deal with it. Done. I'm just giving it all up. And on the other side, we see people who say, just go to your own heart. Your own heart has purity and light. And just look into yourself. David's not looking to himself to be good, either religiously good or just his own spirit good. He says, no, God, you have to do this for me. And his allusion to hyssop and so on like this is, is, is saying this is grace. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a submission of our heart. God cleanses our heart. And once God cleanses our heart, we are not the same as we were before, which means we are not the same evil, desiring, you know, we still struggle with this, but that's not at our core because God has changed and cleansed our core. The, the, the grace that God offers starts before forgiveness as well. Like the grace of forgiveness, the grace of salvation, that's, that's in the wake of our failings. Um, I have always liked the fact that God offers a way of escape. His grace is there from before we fail. In the Garden of Eden, when there's no sin in the world, there's still choice, right? Mm -hmm. And it says in um, one of my favorite verses is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, Right. Or as Solomon said it, there's nothing new under the sun. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Like he even even before we sin, he's got grace set up for us. And he's got us set up with a way to get away from the things that torment us here on earth, which is basically the weaknesses of our own character combined with the supernatural devil who's pursuing us and trying to destroy us, right? It's not, it's not easy sometimes, but his grace is there for us before we fail and his grace is there for us after we fail. And I, I just think that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, he's got a lot of good things he says here. Um, Let's see here. I think maybe maybe verse 16 might be one of the most important verses of it, though. Mm -hmm. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. Yeah. David has recognized something here that I think a lot of people, even today, don't recognize. That. Uh, you know, we always think that God wants us to do something for him in order to get forgiven. But really what he just, he just wants us to change our hearts. He just wants us to, he wants to us look. to submit our hearts yeah. and he will change yeah. them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, but it's not about a ritual of, of killing a lamb. It's not about, you know, putting that thing on a fire. It's not about, it, it, it's not about doing something. It's just about right. It's about turning to him. It's about yes. it's about putting your heart with him and letting letting him do with you what he wants. 
Yes. And uh, that's something that he's recognized here. And I think it's it's just so important to to grasp that because even today people just have this idea that I got to get right with God. I just got to change everything I'm doing. I got to get right with God. And well, yes, everything needs to be changed, uh, but you're not going to do it. Right. You know, you and that's can not try. Where it starts. That's not right. where it starts. Right. That's not where it starts. And so you've got to you've you've got to you've got to let God have your heart. And and then the changes will come. It's not about it's not about um, I got to get my life right and then I can go back to church. No, that's not that's not how that goes. It's like, no, you, you need to you need to just start letting God have his way with you. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a verse. I think it's John. I think it's John. I can't remember. I think pretty sure it's John, where he says, "We love because he first loved us." Mm-hmm. Like any good that we have, like wh- how, what does it say? Our filthiness is as is a, or our uh, righteousness, righteousness is as filthy rags. You know, like yeah. we love because he first loved us. Like what we have that's good is him filling us up and then us overflowing with it. Yeah. Well, as we've already said, the sun that came about from. Uh, this encounter with Bathsheba dies, and David spends a lot of time mourning. Uh, it was a, a good full seven days of fasting and mourning, and uh, praying, praying for God to be merciful on this thing. But God's already said this is going to happen. And when the child does die, David's meaner, demeanor changes instantly. He just gets up, washes his face, I think it says. He, he uh, changes his clothes. I think an important part here is that he worships God. Uh, he, you know, you could get, you could get. I guess a guy could get angry with God. Why did you do this? Well, we've already talked about how this is, this is more of a, this is more of a consequence thing. And and once it's happened and got, uh, David accepts the judgment. It's like he very quickly accepts the judgment. He's like, well, there's nothing I can do about it now. God has God has made his decision and it's done. And and uh, I just got to move forward. Before he says uh, something along the lines of there was a chance before that God might be gracious while the child was alive yeah. and I can't change anything now. So, you know, trying to beat up God over the things, the way our lives are going, um, especially when it's as a result of our actions, that's just not that's not fair to God. And it's really not wise to dwell so much on what's already done, what's already happened. I don't know. I think maybe the way he does it would be a little hard for me if one of my children died. Uh, but um, it's I think it seems to serve as kind of a wake up call of a of a sort to David mm-hmm. there. But this isn't the only child that David has with Bathsheba. And I think we hear more about Bathsheba as his wife than we do of any of the others. You know, we've had some recurrent recurring mention of Michael and we hear about some of the others and the other children he had from them. But it seems like Bathsheba, maybe Bathsheba is one that actually stuck, where she wasn't so much just arm candy, but where maybe there was an actual relationship here. I don't know. I maybe it's curious what happened to Abigail. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. But it, that, it we just don't know. Yeah. But they have another son. This one is a very, very famous name, and it's Solomon. And Solomon eventually becomes the next king of Israel. He says, David comforts Bathsheba over the loss of the one son. But then they sleep together again, and and, uh, she has another son. For some reason, he also calls him Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. So 
Um, so Solomon kind of has two names there. I think overalls and straw hats when I hear the name Jedediah. So I'm perfectly happy with Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> Jedediah. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's just one of those situations, maybe more of a kind of a nickname, but um, we don't, I don't think we ever really hear that name tossed around much to go forward but uh so maybe just sort of a nickname for him oh we're told about this uh this battle i think maybe yeah this is when Raba gets captured and and eric had alluded to this a little bit before it's um a little blurb and it kind of crosses over to first chronicles chapter 20 it's an ammonite city and joab captures the city's water supply and this is when he calls for david to come and claim the city for himself so I guess we've had a little insight into that where um, it's kind of seems like maybe David should have been out doing this. And maybe Joab thinks David should have been out doing this kind of thing. But he's definitely he's giving David the opportunity to come and take the glory on it, even though he's the one that's done all the work. Uh, A little interesting side note that comes out of Chronicles 20. And I think maybe we actually talk about it again later in Second Samuel, but of these giants that get destroyed at this time too, different ones. We have one named. I think it's Sipai. Uh, seems to me like they called him a, the a son of the giant. I'm taking quote unquote the giant to be um, Goliath. So Sipai is a son, possibly a son of Goliath. You have Wait, Lam- why are you taking it that way? That, well, that's I don't know because just the way it was written, it just says says he was the son of the giant. It wasn't specific about but, who. But the, Goliath was from Gath. Yeah. Well. What's a Rephaite? Hang on. What's a Rephaite? Well, I don't know, because at this point, the only the only giant we've heard about really was Goliath. Um, well, there was... Um, who was that king with the giant bed? Bashan. So, I don't know. It was just, an, it was just a supposition. Oh, oh there's, there's a number of them. There, yeah. There's a number of them at... Um, yeah, all king of Bashan, I think is what it was. There's... there's there's a number of kings and a number of giants, and some of them even have the same name. There's the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, which is a different Goliath. We've got to make it confusing. We've got more than one giant named Goliath, right. and uh, they've, they're kind of these interesting animals with six fingers and six toes. And uh, David's uh, nephew uh, kills at least one of them, and uh, so yeah, they they. Uh, they knocked down some more giants and mm-hmm. uh, little interesting side notes there. They they seem to die out, but yeah. Let's we've got uh, we've got we got a lot of ground to cover in thirteen yeah. through fifteen. Yeah. Yes. So that's yeah. Let's move on here. David's son. He has another son, Absalom. <clears throat> He's the son of one of his wives. I believe his name is Makah. And he, Absalom, has a sister named Tamar. Then Amnon, David's firstborn from Ahinoam, says he loved Tamar. And this is his half-sister. And as you read between, well, I don't even know if you have to read between the lines. Just as you read it, I think saying that he loved Tamar, uh, it's probably more appropriate to say that he lusted after her. There's some kind of obsession going on here. It ain't great. Yeah, it's definitely more of an obsession and not a love. Because it talks about how he becomes sick because... Becomes sick because she's a virgin. Just that phrase sounds kind of sick to me. You know, your your half your half sister is a is a virgin, and and this has got your blood boiling. 
Well, okay, so yeah, so no, hang on, that's not, that's, that's kind of it. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for him to do anything to her. It was the restraint that was killing him. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it's, it's, uh, even as a dude, I'm looking at this going, gosh, man, so you are, gross. you're kind of gross. Yeah, it's gross. And, and yeah, it's kind of gross. And so, but his, now his cousin, Amnon's cousin, Jonadab, he gets in on the action. He concocts this plan for Amnon to get, to get close to Tamar. He says, he basically he's like, well, pretend to be sick and then ask David to send Tamar to take care of you. And I guess this this sounds like a great idea to Amnon. And so he's acting like he's sick and, and David sends her to take care of him. Um, and while she's there making him chicken soup or whatever, he tries to coerce her into bed. And this, I don't know, this thing gets so cloudy and muddled here. It's, it's, it's odd because it seems like maybe she's not totally against it, but it, um, the way she tries to ward him off, it says, well, just, just ask David to marry me and he won't, he won't hold me back. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how much choice women had right. when a guy decided to come, if, if a man of power or even a man decided to come after you, I don't know how much choice to me, like, and this is a modern female perspective on it. To me, if I had been in that position and I had said those things, it would be a stalling tactic. Yeah. But, but like, if you don't have a choice who you go to bed with, she will only get honor out of the marital relationship. That's the only way she gets honor. Yes. Out mm -hmm. of that. Right. She is the one disgraced by what is done forcibly to her. So she is trying to put some cloak of acceptability over what he clearly wants to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is one of those cases too. And I, I, there, there was a lot that it would be kind of hard to find it, but I, I remember, I think it was in Leviticus. It was this kind of a relationship was specifically forbidden because close relatives just weren't supposed to have a sexual yep. relationship. Yep. And Absolutely. I mean, I remember things about don't sleep with your mother, with your, with your, the daughter of your father's wife type of thing, you know, right. because, because there were, uh, the, there were multiple wife in, involvements and, but it, this is still your, this is still your dad's daughter. So don't do it. It's gross. But although, yeah. I mean, I don't think that they were probably raised in the same household, opening Christmas presents together and eating breakfast. You know what I mean? Like, I right. don't. I think mm -hmm. that probably that wife lived over there and raised her children in whatever fashion was acceptable. And this wife lived over here. So I think it was, I think you probably lost that feeling of family, even yeah. though family still existed. So, and yeah. I think, and I think too, what I was thinking is that's how it was back to what I was saying. One wife, one husband, just the two. Cause when you start to have multiple families, I think this gets, that closeness gets diluted and then stuff like this can happen. You yeah. say that you said, you said diluted and I actually heard it spelled that way, not diluted, but diluted. And oh. that was funny to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
unfortunately, Tamar isn't successful in holding off Amnon, and he grabs her and takes her. I mean, it's it's rape. Let's just say it right right up what it is. This isn't this isn't like um, oh gosh. Now I'm thinking back. We had there was the one um, the one prince of the town who had, was keeping the the sister of of the uh, uh, sons of uh, of Israel. He was keeping her, and and they Dino? had a relation. Yeah, was Dino? it Diana? Maybe that's who I'm talking about. But but um, that seemed more of a consensual thing. This is very this is very much this is very much a rape situation, and. Um, Amnon, man, this guy's just a jerk. Because as soon as as soon as he's done the thing, it says that he hated her exceedingly. Now he's got this contempt for her. He got what he wanted from her, and now he hates her and just wants her gone. And my guess is maybe during the event she was trying to fight him off, and he didn't like it. No, I don't think that's it at all. No, I want to come right out. Okay, it's because sin. The, the devil presents before us this, like, you want this, you want this, you want this, you want this so bad. And we take the thing, and then he says, you suck, you're so bad, this is so awful. And our inclination is to never blame ourselves. We turn it on someone else. Right. We mm-hmm. had somebody, it's a short story, we were walking on the beach last night, it was dark, and there were people with dogs on the beach, which is illegal. And one of the dogs basically didn't bite us, but attacked us, okay? Barking and growling and jumping at us. And um, I, uh, we acted defensively, and the people blame us. Why are you doing this? Why, are you, why don't you just leave us alone? You could be better if you just left. I'm thinking like, okay, so you brought dogs here illegally, and they're not under your control, and now you're blaming us. Mm. that's the way we do sin. We get pulled over for speeding and we're angry at the cop. You know, we get, I've seen, come on, who hasn't seen this? Somebody gets caught stealing something and what do they do? Do they say, oh, you're right. You're right. I'm stealing. Do they do that? No. We don't do that as humans. Sin presents itself as as this this great thing that we want. And then as soon as we get it, it turns to ashes in our hands. Yeah. But instead of saying, oh, God, you're right. I, this is wrong, and I shouldn't. Taking David's course, right? Admitting that this is a problem and that we were at fault and that we have sinned, we turn our anger to something, to someone else. Because we don't want to admit that we've done wrong. And that's... Mm. That's just the way we roll as humans because it's, it's Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, God, why did you put this woman here? And the woman's like, well, you put the serpent here. So when you, when you when you look at sin from an immature point of view, it feels very justified. Like, oh, but it looked so enticing. It looked like it was going to be better than it was, and I didn't know that it wasn't going to be so great until I was actually in it, right? And so it's not really my fault. I was beguiled. Anybody ever heard that line before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the devil made me do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Well, and the, and the devil did make you do it, but he can't make you do it past your own yes, right? So right. The, yep. the problem is he's really good at compelling 
it makes he makes you feel like you're being drawn so hard that it feels like you want it like you are you feel internally driven to go and do that thing but if you want to look at sin from a mature point of view as gross as this story is we're all amnon yeah mm -hmm. yeah and that's mm -hmm. the thing is that in and and he has this transparent reaction. I mean, his story is just super transparent here. Right? Yeah. It's just, there's there's no metaphor here. It's just, it's all terrible. But when you really, really look at it, how different is that than what David did? I mean, is it, a mis is it an accident that it immediately follows the same? Here's a desire. Here's a scheme. Here's, here's the carrying out the scheme. And then where do we go after that? That's where these stories part ways. And David takes responsibility. David repents. Unfortunately, David does not man up. And I've read a number of commentaries that have said, and psych psychology says it too, is that David doesn't because he feels his own guilt and shame over what he has done. Because there's a very interesting... Wait, uh, hold on. What? what did you say? Say that one more time. I think that David does not act as a parent as he should because of his own guilt and shame. The consequence of what he did before. Yes, exactly. Playing ex into his future. That's exactly what I'm saying because verse 21 here of, of chapter 13, when King David heard these things, he was very angry. And the Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagint add, but would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, because he was his firstborn. The, the sin of, of, um, of rape and of adultery and of incest was punishable by death. This was part of their legal and religious code system. This had already been decided generations before David and Amnon showed up. Mm -hmm. Long time ago. But David does nothing yeah and unfortunately the nothing that he does is planting more seeds sometimes we think oh i sinned i did wrong i'm just gonna oh well just gonna let that go i'm just gonna just i don't want to deal with it the pain of dealing with it is greater at the moment than my concern about what the future might be so you know what i'll just not deal with it now I will put it off. I will not act with integrity. And uh, just later is going to happen, whatever happens. Usually the Satan hides us from the idea of what happens later. We just think, you know what? This will be a difficult conversation. This will be a very hard thing to do. This will be embarrassing. This will be, you name it, fill in the blanks, expensive, whatever. And so I'm not going to do it. I am going to simply not take the action I know I should take. I'm just going to let it slip. We all do this. To Karen's point, you know, that we're all Amnon. We're, we're all David here in this point, too, that we don't deal with things. And my encouragement to each of us is, is if you have a hard thing and you know you need to deal with it, you've got to surrender that to God. Say, God, I can't handle this, but I something has to be done. What do I do? I have to come clean on this. You know, New Testament talks about every secret thing will be revealed. You know, that's that's you'll find that in Revelation. Well, we also see the prophet Nathan saying that, too, here in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not old. It's just a, hey, this is it's pre-Jesus. You know, I'd rather think of it that way. We have a, a, a pre-sacrificial lamb and a post-sacrificial lamb. 
It's the same story, though, is that when we don't deal with these things and we don't surrender these things and we don't address sin with what it is and call it what it is, Paul calls himself the greatest of all sinners. He doesn't sugarcoat it. But David won't deal with this, and it results in more death. Now, a little, little note is that David, when he says that man should pay back fourfold, Nathan says, you know, this, you are the man. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what he says here um, about that. But David does, in fact, spoiler alert here, he loses four sons as a result of this. He already lost one. Who is the infant? If you want to take notes, here they are. He loses his baby son in 2 Samuel 12, 18. He loses another son in 2 Samuel 13, 29. Mm-hmm. He loses his third son in 2 Samuel 18, 14. Mm-hmm. And he loses his fourth son after David's death in 1 Kings 2, 24. He does, in fact, pay this back fourfold. And I can't help but wonder if he hadn't stood up as a man right here to Amnon, he could have changed the course of all that, but he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. David doesn't seem to want to do anything here, but Absalom, Tamar's brother, he guesses right away what's mm-hmm. happened when he sees, he sees Tamar in mourning because Absalom's kicked her out, uh, which she, she kind of says is, Yes, thank you. Amnon kicks her out, which she says is is a worse slight than than the rape. Now he he just boots her out, and what's she supposed to do? But Absalom comes along and sees her uh, mourning what has happened to her, and he he has this odd way of comforting her. He basically is like, "He's your brother." Says, "Don't take this thing to heart." But you know that that sounds like well, don't worry about it. But yet. He kind of goes quiet then. He won't speak to Absalom. And two years pass. And Absalom apparently is just kind of fuming for these two years. Stewing. Stewing. (laughs) Biding his time. Yes. Yeah. And he eventually decides to invite all of the king's sons to a party. I don't quite understand his motivation for the party or what he claims is the motivation for his party. Cause he says something, I have sheep shears. Let's have a party. I'm like, oh, okay. That means something to you. I, well, I, remember, I'm, remember the sheep shearing was a time of a party and that's when David met Abigail. And that's when David sent for yep. the, it's like, Hey, this is supposed to be a time for celebration and generosity. I'm, and I think it was just okay. straight up. Uh, Absalom is just being sneaky. He doesn't want to invite just Amnon or Amnon will go, Hey, what's going Hi. on? Yeah. But it was, it was another thing of seeing, and once again, David was good at premeditating this stuff, and this is exactly what yes. um, Absalom did. He premeditated yep. and worked out this plan to kill somebody else. It by somebody else's hand. Two mm-hmm. years to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he has this party. He makes darn sure that Amnon comes to this party because he invites David too, and David's like, eh. I don't know. We maybe should. I don't remember. But it's like maybe it's not a great time for this. But he's like, well, just at least let Amnon come. And so it sounds like all of the 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 brothers and half brothers get together to have this this party for the sheep sharing time. And Absalom has instructed his servants to kill Amnon at the party. It sounds like the the idea is to have this done right in front of everybody. Yeah. It's not even. He's not even trying to hide it so much. 
He just nope. he just has Amnon killed right in front of everybody because it says all the sons flee. Well, obviously the sons saw what happened, so he just he just makes a call for it and says says do it. Not only do the uh, the king's other sons flee, this part of the story kills me every time. They leap onto their mules and flee. And in my head, which is clearly made up of Hollywood chase scenes, this is so funny, I can hardly stand it. Like, <laughs> all of the story is very high drama and very, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Is he going to get away with it? And part of you wants Tamar to be vindicated, and part of you is like, no, don't commit murder, and, you know, all of this stuff. And then all of the king's sons leap onto their mules, and it's like, nope, nope, nope. There went my mental images of... Well, a frantic dashing into the night. I can hardly handle it. It's not like not like they got onto donkeys. I mean, a mule is, is a pretty big animal, but uh, but yeah, they take the time to jump on their mules and and run off. Now, Jonadab, David's nephew, this guy doesn't help things at all because isn't this the guy who came up with the uh, with the yeah? This is the whole the guy. This is kind of the guy who sort of insti- started to instigate the whole thing by suggesting that Amnon. Uh, play sick. Well, now Jonadab goes to David and tells him that all of the sons are dead. Everybody's dead. And that Absalom has uh, plotted the whole thing since since Amnon raped his sister. And David goes into this mourning situation where, you know, based on a lie here, but but yeah, it's like good job, Jonadab, but um, Unfortunately, David learns that no, they're not all dead. Only, only Amnon, Amnon is dead, which doesn't do a lot to console David. But now Absalom flees to—is it Jeshur or Geshur? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Basically, that's uh, I believe his father-in-law's house. Okay, but he 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 runs away. The other sons return, and David and the the remaining sons—they all mourn for Amnon. And Absalom stays with Talmai, the prince of Geshur. Three says years. He stays with him for three years. And then it says David longed to go to Absalom. And I think there was some, seems like there was maybe some, some alternate translation there. Either he longed to go for, to him or, or wouldn't go to him. I don't remember exactly. I don't know that it's really that important, but, um, but David, David, it's like he wanted to go to Absalom because Absalom is is his son, but yeah. yet he 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 wouldn't, and he didn't he didn't allow Absalom to come back. Now, uh, this isn't this isn't a manslaughter situation. This isn't like like we talked about with the manslaughter cities, and uh, it's not like it's not like Absalom should have had any kind of of immunity by going to another town. I don't think this is one of those towns anyway. But um, so okay, but then if we take it back a if we take it back a step, if 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 rape and incest were supposed to be killable offenses, and he, as his unmarried sister's legal protector, took action on her behalf, like hmm. you you see what I'm getting at? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, in their system, right there. I mean, the shame should have rested with David because he didn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he stays He stays away for three years, and then Joab steps in. 
and he he seems to be Job seems to be noticing that David is mourning that his son is gone, but yet he won't bring him back out of I don't know some sort of vindictive not vindictive that's not the right word but just angry he's obviously angry with one son for killing another son I uh, can't say I blame David for that but yet at the same time he's lamenting that Absalom is gone but this is unreconciled see so mm-hmm. there's got my guess would be as as emotionally astute as David is my guess would be that there's some guilt involved here like this is an unreconciled situation and part of its unreconciliation is because David didn't intervene when he should have. Yeah. If he brings if he brings Absalom back now, he has to deal with it in some yeah. way. He has to deal with it privately and he has to deal with it publicly. And how mm-hmm. on earth do you do that? Well, he doesn't try is the answer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I I think he's just taking the easier way out. Yeah. Absolutely. My yeah. opinion. Well, Joab comes with this plan. He's going to have this woman go to David, have her dress in mourning clothes, and tell David that one of her sons has killed the other. Now, why? how does David not pick up on these things? I don't know. But um, one of the sons has killed the other, and now her family wants the remaining son to be killed. Talks about the avenger of blood. We've talked about that in the past. I, well, like you just kind of mentioned, where mm-hmm. um, where. Uh, somebody's been wronged or or killed, and 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 it's there's like a right within the family to to avenge that. And David quickly promises her that her son won't be killed. But then she points out that David is acting like her quote unquote family by banishing Absalom. So he's we've got this same situation: one one brother killed another brother, and David is is holding him back holding him away and i really liked this verse here and it's it's one that um i want to remember she says god does not take away a life but he devises a means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him Mm -hmm. yeah i love that and uh so it's so maybe like you were or maybe it seemed like maybe you were suggesting karen that absalom absalom wasn't in the wrong for what he did at least not, I, not. I I think that he was in the wrong for not addressing it immediately. Mm-hmm. Maybe he didn't take it to his father because he knew that David wouldn't want to kill his firstborn. But the proper way to do this, nobody was murdered, so avenger of blood is a little strong. But how about avenger of wrong? Like mm-hmm. there were, there should have been a public punishment for what Amnon did to Tamar. And David doesn't do it. And Absalom, as her protector, takes matters into his own hands and doesn't address it until far too late and in a wrong way. And it just right. it causes more trouble instead of actually following the law of the, that they had and addressing it within the law. See, and I think that's right there is where she said it. she catches it, addressing it within the law. And I think David, that's where he was caught between a rock and a hard place is that the law said that he should die. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. was cut and dry. Yeah. And if, you know, you think back um, where we've come from, when it's when it's in law, there's no, there's no um, refuting it at all. It has to be done. And I think this is the reason why he didn't do it. And he let it, let it slide for three years, or not three years, but um, 
that, well, three years, that course of time and not address it is that he knew what he needed to do and he wasn't, he wasn't willing to do it. He wasn't willing to do the correction that he needed to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wonder now what kind of a relationship that Joab and Absalom had, because it's Joab who decides that Absalom needs to come back. And he's the one who orchestrates this this situation to kind of teach. And he, he says, David eventually agrees that Joab can bring Absalom back to Jerusalem, but Absalom still can't come see David. Yeah, basically all of this starts, it, it goes down, it starts this this path for David that is not good because, yeah, he, he forgives Absalom. Absalom comes back. He lives for two years without seeing David. And there's just thing after thing that goes on here. Um, Absalom wants to see David, sends for Joab to send, uh, to, to be able to go see David. Joab doesn't even come to, to talk to him. And Absalom decides to set Joab's barley field on fire. There's a, the, Absalom kind of seemed to be a guy who does not like to have to deal with injustice. Uh, not well, yeah. He 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 does not like to see injustice. He does not like to see injustice go undealt with. Let's say it that way, because uh, he he just he really feels like like he's being wronged by help, being held back from from David. But he eventually gets to go to the king, allows him to come, and, and David forgives him, but. Absalom's not still not happy about it. He he starts growing this military force for himself. And he sets himself in between David and the people by by kind of heading them off at the pass when they would come to David with as the Bible was calling it a lawsuit. And Absalom would kind of stand there at the gate and he would be the one who would talk them through things and make judgments on stuff. And started he started to gain gain the love of the people through it. And I think maybe they, he was starting to make people feel like David didn't care enough to see them. And well, we don't four years, four years he spent doing this. Yeah. And the point might, I think it's worth noting that the King would have had to been David would have had to been fairly well insulated, retreated, withdrawn mm-hmm. to not know this. Uh-huh. And apparently he didn't know this. And so it makes the idea that Absalom is dealing with people's undealt with issues pretty real. I mean, because if David has basically said, ah, I just abdicate, I'm just going to just, yeah, I'm just going to go back in my room and watch TV. Don't disturb me. Then, I mean, the whole kingdom seems to be just kind of rolling on without him. And he seems to be, he, David, we see after Bathsheba, he kind of takes this role of extreme passivity on almost. It's like, dude, you got to still man up and deal with stuff. He, it's like he goes from David pre Bathsheba, who is, wow, he is quite a guy to David post Bathsheba to where he's so passive that almost nothing gets him out of his couch. Mm-hmm. I have one thing for that though, is I think too, you have David pre Bathsheba just, righteous kind of knows where his strength comes from trying to abide in it, do what he needs to do. Then he has post Bathsheba where I think he was humbled 
to the point of, you know what, how can I, how can I judge these others, my own family, when I, I've done this too? Yeah, humble is one thing, and I think humble is good, but I think he swings past the humble oh, point yeah. in the pendulum to a passive, I'm just not even going to deal with it. Because, I mean, come on, the, the sins that, that, um, that Amnon and, you know, perpetrated here, doing nothing about that was, he, he needed to, well, basically, he needed a man up, and he just didn't do it. And we see that again here with Absalom. But how hard is it for you to, to you know, I look at this with my own son, and how is it you're able to punish them for something they've done, but you've done it too? It's hard, but I it's think hard. it's Exactly. In, 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 and I'm I not saying it's easy. I'm just yeah, saying it's no, necessary. That's, that's where he drops the ball altogether is he's not willing to do that because I think he's basically saying, how can I correct this when I've made the same mistake too, where right now that we know that too, as a parent, we have to say, you know what? I made this mistake. Don't you make the mistake right there? You and go paid for the mistake. So you have to pay for the mistake too. Well, this all leads up to Absalom kind of building an army underneath himself. And, he asks and gets permission to go to Hebron. He says to fulfill a vow to serve God that he had made in while he was in Geshur. But he gets spies all throughout Israel. And he's telling everybody, when you hear the trumpet, you should say that Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he's starting to, he's starting to build a support for himself. He's starting to undermine David's uh, authority, David's um, good standing. And he ultimately gets, it says he gets 200 men to go with him. And it seems like the men don't quite know what's happening, but, but all the same, they're men that have kind of grown or have, they're now expected to be loyal to Absalom. And so the numbers helpers and Mm -hmm. key cabinet members and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. David catches wind. Uh, I don't even get any indication that there was a, a, a battle getting ready to go but maybe he just knew what was happening here that absalom is getting ready for something and he decides to leave jerusalem and he takes uh some servants with him uh he leaves a few concubines in the house to take care of things he gets 600 men to go with him david and then zadok and levites they want to go with him but he sends them back because they're they're like right there they're like we've got the ark and everything we're, we're ready to go with you says no go back there he seems to have some faith that god's going to bring him back and he sends another guy, Hushai, back to be kind of act as Absalom's servant and be a spy for him. And that's sort of where we're leaving off for this week, where David's actions, I wanted to go this far. And I know that we've recorded a bit longer than normal here, but I wanted to go this far just to kind of show David's actions. This 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 all started, this whole, everything that's going to go forward here for a bit, it all starts with David's decision I guess kind of as Tracy said, to not look away when he sees when he sees um Bathsheba naked. He could have looked away and it could have changed everything. And it's it's the it's these little details of our lives that snowball and yes. and create bigger problems. And man, we have to be on guard for those things. And we have to really be uh like somebody else was talking about. David never asked God's, we never get any indication that David ever asked God's opinion about women. And, and, and this was his blind spot. Maybe not so much his blind spot. Maybe he knew it was a blind spot or knew it was a, knew it was a weak spot. And 
deliberately didn't ask God because he knew what God would say. And uh, so that's um, that's a huge lesson for us to to stay on guard and constantly be looking for what God wants in our lives so that we can avoid the giant snowball effects that come down the down the pike for us. Yeah, I think that's going to be it for this week. Next week, I think we are going to get into, we are going to stay in 2 Samuel. We'll look at 2 Samuel 16 through 20. We're going to be looking at some of the fallout for what's what's coming through all of this. Uh, while you are looking for that, remember you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.